So we've been practicing some periods of the day with the door open, and I'm curious how that is for you. Um, Because one of the things I want to explore tonight is the open door. Um, There's a poem from Rumi which I'll start with, many of you know, and it's always beautiful for me, this one. He says, The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You have to say what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So I want to explore this. People are walking back and forth at the threshold. It's not other people. <laughs> it's, it's us. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. And the door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So what two worlds is he speaking about? And I'd also ask you, in whatever ways you see in your own life where division is uh, apparent between worlds. Worlds sounds very big and grand, but hopefully I'll explain that. And some of you will know very clearly, immediately, what I'm talking about. (coughs) On the very simple level here, uh, on a physical level, and yet we can have it at many, many dimensions, is the worlds of inner and outer. They seem like two worlds, don't they, sometimes? Do you see that? And often we have a preference. Wherever there's two worlds, we can tend to have a preference and feel more located and secure in one or the other. So sometimes we're very uh, practiced at being in the world out there, right? And may have no idea what's happening in the world in here, right? In the interiority. Others might be really, really interiorized and not have so much sense of what's going on for other people or the world. And I paint them in broad brushstrokes. Of course, there's subtleties and nuances for all of us in all of this. Somebody today in the group talked about uh, the split between my Dharma life and the rest of my life, or real life, right? My Dharma life, and on the other side of the door was the life of um, packed lunches, getting meals on the table, two hours of housework a day, right? Some, for her, she was exploring some kind of split between those two. (coughs) 
For some it can be um, where our reference point is, right? Sometimes our reference point for our sense of meaning is the personal realm, right? Which can uh, be about my life and my aspirations and what I want and what's possible and not have so much sense of what's going on out there. And for others of us, it's really about, okay, sorting out the world, fixing the world, saving the world, and not having so much sense of what's here. And I'm going to give various examples of potential, potential, I'm using the word split, it's not always as dramatic as that, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. It's actually not uncommon for people who've spent a lot of time in silence and these practices, it's not uncommon for, and, and who have a great love of Dharma, a great, sincere love of Dharma, it's not uncommon for us to then feel a division when we're in the rest of our life. Something about that depth that may be accessed, something about what we touch and see in the silence and the solitude, which we never completely know yet how to completely actualize and embody in our life. And it can feel like a really painful divide, actually. Here's another more, uh, another way, another one that somebody came up with today. She said, I, when I come to... What did she say? Oh, yes. She said, when the group comes, a small group comes, she said, I can feel within me arise these, these two urges. One is, I want to remain hidden. Right? That's one side. And she said, and actually, when I see that, also what's arising is, and I really want to be heard. Right? I want to remain hidden, and I really want to be heard. And then the mind was, her mind, I think, was rationalizing, well... I shouldn't want to be heard, or being heard it never quite gets there anyway. That's just performing self and, and all of that, right? So just be with the quiet. And the quiet is beautiful indeed. We're all drawn in some way, each one of us here. If you sit late at night here in the hall, as, as probably many of you have and some of us did last night, and that kind of darkness, that still darkness that almost has a tangible a tangible presence to it that can permeate and seep and penetrate the heart. Probably many of us love that. Right? But if there becomes a place where we want to hide out, then at some point we'll feel that we'll feel the split. It's different to have the love and devotion than to want to withdraw and make our home in a particular condition, right? Because the Buddha's always pointing to home isn't a particular condition, including silence. But is there a way that that love of silence and that love of the depth that's available for us and the wish to express the wish to be heard 
that that wish to express and be heard needn't necessarily be just all our old ego, which sometimes the spiritual judgment can come on it and say that that's what it is. But there might be something very real about a human being who knows her depth of the silence and the vast beyond, we could say, and expresses himself, herself, in form, in manifestation, maybe through words, maybe through gesture, maybe through stillness. But still that expression is a part of the whole. In teachings, and again, uh, you won't necessarily, all of you, maybe some of the beginners wouldn't know the language of this yet, but I offer another one of the positing, the extreme views that can come of the world. This is the world is real. The world is absolutely real, right? And we take it really, 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 really seriously, or we split into another whole realm and say, "Oh well, it's not real." We pick up the view of emptiness as if that would say that things are not real. So it's all real, or no, it's not real. And the implication of that, well, if it's all real, I get really bogged down in it. And if it's not real, I don't have to care about it. Right? The Buddha did not say that. Again, there are two extreme views. Again, the middle way, the threshold, the doorway, where the two worlds meet. Where we can't make our home absolutely in either one of those views. Right? There's a piece from... Um, Nagarjuna. So this is Stephen Batchelor's translation of Nagarjuna's verses from the center. Um, and they're, they're great for the mind. They don't let you land in that way that the mind likes to. It's quite beautiful. But he's saying, because you sometimes find it that the, the view of emptiness becomes another place to hang out or another view to hold on to. This is just a small piece. He says, Buddhas say... Emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. Right? Incurable. And yet, the teaching and the doctrine of emptiness is incredibly liberating. Right? When we start to see the empty nature of things, that there isn't something at the center that's absolutely fixed and solid. Oh, the world starts to open up, transformation becomes possible, things start to unfold. But can you see the trick? If we start to pick that up as a view, oh, it's all empty, it's not real, we can start to move into the extreme of nihilism, which is one extreme, asserting that the world is not real, and the other extreme asserting that it is real. And the Buddha says, uh uh-uh. Keep here, keep with the phenomenal, phenomenolog- <laughs> How would that word go? Phenomenology. Somebody help me out with that one. From the, oh, I need the L at the end, okay. Phenomenological world. Stay right here with the immediacy of the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind. Here's where the question of the two worlds is answered. Not, not in your. Mind. The mind is brilliant. The Buddha was not anti-intellectual. I hope you really get that. He was pretty smart. He was pretty smart. 
right? But it's what is the mind in the service of? What is it in the service of? Is it in the service of spinning my worldviews? Or is it in the service and devotion of something else? When I did this uh, mandala meditation on the second day and I invited you to sit at the center of your own map, two-dimensional, three-dimensional map of all the causes and conditions that had brought you to this point in your life, right? All the supporting conditions, the lovely ones, the difficult ones, the ones we don't even know about, right? So right back from our ancestors, our DNA, our physical material, the uh, psychological propensities, the um, strengths and weaknesses, joys and sorrows, all the conditions that have come to bring me here, including all the present moment conditions, the food, today's lunch, the sun, the rain, the the environment, etc., Welcoming all of those conditions, right? Paying homage to them, including more and more and more and more. How does that fit with the teaching of the Buddha where he says there isn't one thing, there isn't one thing in all of the conditions of your life, your inner conditions of body and mind, all the conditions that brought you here, there isn't one thing that you can pick up and say, that's me. Not one of those conditions, nothing, he said, no thing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. This is, this is emptiness. Right? Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, and mine. Not my lovely mind states, my moods, my opinions, my insights, my home, my relationship, my etc., etc. How do those two fit? How do we welcome all the conditions? And maybe it's very obvious to you in this moment how we sit at the threshold where we welcome the conditions of our life and actually include more and more of them because some of them showing up right here. Paying homage to the conditions of our life without taking any one of them to ultimately say anything about me. How does that married, how is that married with this not clinging to anything as I, me, or mine? (coughs) And where can we find out the answer? (laughs) We can read about it forever and that might be interesting, but it's here in the immediacy of taking that seat at the doorway where the two worlds meet, where our tendency is to want to go one side of the door and go, got it, I understand it now. The world isn't really real, it's okay. <laughs> or, oh no, 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 it really is. Look, look at, look at, look at the conditions. It, look, it touches our heart when we let the world impact. And how is it to tolerate sitting here at the threshold where the two worlds meet, because that's where we always are. But we have our defenses, our protections, our uh, shrouds over the heart-mind, 
to try to manage that, we think, because there's a kind of an uncertainty there, a kind of. <laughs> there is an uncertainty there. There's no script there. It's not written there, but it's the only place of transformation. It takes a risk, some risk. person who gave the example of the Dharma and the life of packed lunches, right, said that what she could see was that there was some wish to compartmentalize those two worlds so that she could know in advance a little bit what each one would be. Right? It's about the need for some kind of security. Right? Some, and it's very normal, nothing wrong, but we see its limitation at a certain point. We can look at it um, at another level of different qualities, different qualities of the human being that arise that also feel like they're worlds apart to some of us. And there'll be different ways we compartmentalize different qualities that can arise, beautiful qualities that can arise. So for example, and I'll give you a few options and see if any of them resonate for you. Some you won't be splitting at all. Some may be completely integrated for you. You may not be making this uh, two worlds here. I remember for me, uh, part of being drawn to Buddhist practice in the beginning and the Buddha Dharma, apart from the Four Noble Truths, which was what I shared the other night, was that it uh, the kind of teachers that I was attracted to in the beginning and the kinds of expressions of Dharma that I appreciated most and could listen to most in the beginning were the more kind of sober uh, expressions, the ones that weren't too excitable, or you know, rather the, 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 the aspect of the dispassion, which is a beautiful aspect of the Dharma, right? where we're not kind of getting kind of uh, excited and fired up by anything. And it was such a relief for me was a contrast to my conditioning. So I was attracted to, I thought, oh, they're the real ones, right? The ones that were kind of, expressed the austerity, perhaps, the sobriety, the not being, you know, couldn't sort of tickle them very much, you know. That was what attracted me, um, because it provided a counterpoint to the conditioning, which had been a little bit more... Ticklish, you could say. <laughs> um, and it was in contrast to the family of origin, which was a little bit more excitable and, and had you know, beautiful qualities, but sobriety was not one of them. Sobriety was not one of them. So that's where I was attracted. But that became a view for me. That became a view. Oh, that's the real thing. Got it. Right? So I a little bit had to try that on tried to be sober, and there was something real in it, something true in it, but also something that closed down around the heart for me, of a little bit closing down around the joy, which was a little bit more natural, um, and had been a, an okay part of the conditioning, right? something there. So for me, there was a split between sobriety and joy. 
dispassion, which is very beautiful, beautiful aspect of the teaching, the dispassion, and that which may appear more passionate. Right? Where are you with that one? <laughs> maybe that's not maybe that's not compartmentalized for you. Because passion is very tricky, right? The passionate human being, in a sense, we've all probably gone down that route and to some degree and actually realized, ooh, hold on a minute. Well hey, back up a little bit. Got to learn something about dispassion and something about the cooling out of the Dharma is such a relief. It's such a blessing. In fact, the Buddha has a, there's a beautiful piece about the dispassion that holds passion. Right? But, and there's a, there's a, not but, and there's an incredible wisdom because if we follow all our passions, we know where they go. If we let them run through the body, picked up by the mind, and we follow them, we know where that goes. When there isn't wisdom, when there isn't right view, when there isn't the knowledge of what actually is this passion in the service of? What is this force that runs through the human being or the, as the belly opens some more and the life force is more available? What is that passion actually in the service of? And it could be in the service of anything. We could be passionate about playing tennis. It's all right. Now we could be passionate about a good, a really good cause, which could be beautiful, could be our expression. I always feel I don't. I only said this once before, and I was a little bit nervous afterwards in case my brothers listened to my Dharma talks, but I'm sure they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like some of my brothers. I have lots of brothers. Some of my brothers, their passion is Crystal Palace football team, right? It's really where their devotion is, really. It's, it's actually, you know, you can see the sparkle and light in their eyes. That's where the passion goes. That's where the energy, that's where the homage is. Not only, I don't want to limit anyone to any of those things, but, you know, our passion can go in many, many places. So how to skillfully have that life force and handle it rather than it being picked up by all the, uh, the old grooves that go in particular directions. It's really to, to marry it with wise view and wisdom and to know what it's in the service of. Because if we shut down around our passion, uh, sometimes we might need to do that for a bit to kind of get the reins on it. But if we continue to do that in the service of waking up. As one of my teachers said, if we shut down around our passion, it's the road to dullness. But if we open it up without wisdom, it's a very giddy ride. So wisdom, if we're holding the passion there, the dispassion and the passion, the sobriety and the joy, here's another pair for you. Um, that I've seen have been split in me between strength and tenderness. Tenderness. What is it like when you're tender? Right, we're really tender, like the green shoots coming out of the you know the new buds. That tender.
tender quality of heart, that incredible human quality, and strength that has the capacity for saying no, drawing lines, being clear, straightforward. How are they together? I I notice it would go sometimes to one or the other. If I was strong and clear, I wouldn't necessarily have my heart and the tenderness. Or if I was tender, then as somebody said the other day, then I might pick up everything that's going on and lose my definition, in a sense. There's something in Dharma teachings or practice, as we work with our own heart-mind, as we're willing to sit with it, one of the words that's used as we train that mind, it becomes more malleable. And this, again, isn't just brain. It's the whole sensitive sensitivity becomes more malleable. It's more um, uh, responsive, actually. It's more malleable, less rigid, less fixed. Somebody today was had the metaphor that the, it was like a, they had a sense of a vertical shaft, like a from the the crown right through to the seat, a vertical shaft, and noticing that there was one state that would arise, um, which she was seeing as this fading out, deluded, not quite being his state, that felt like dropping to somewhere, she called it lower ground floor on the lift shaft, that had some stillness in it, had some comfort in it, had some so far in her life had been a kind of a refuge from the noise and haste, right? But was starting to see that that was another place she was locating as home, but it was just actually a state that had gotten um, uh, picked up as a place to hang out. As we work with those states, the lift shaft in this metaphor becomes more malleable. It's more available for reality and response. Here's another pair. What about innocence and power? Innocence and power. I won't go into all of them. What about will, determination, and flexibility? And somebody mentioned this morning around relaxation. What about relaxation and training the mind? I like these, these pairs, these potential two worlds, because the mind can't really get the answer in the end. We have to know it through the immediacy, through sitting at the threshold. And then the big one in Dharma teachings is self and not self. Self and not self. Where the Buddha does not say there is no self. He says things are not self. Can you see the difference? He's not saying you're not there. He's saying the conditions that you pick up as self, they're not self. They're not home. So the two extremes of self and not self. Can we sit at the threshold where the two worlds meet? So where does this leave us if we explore this? And I I encourage you to explore it again in your immediacy. Don't try to take this only to your head, 
right now. Because with concepts, the head will, on its own, <laughs> on its own, will go, will go flip-flop, flip-flop from one to the other, from one to the other. We need as much of us as is available, our head, our heart, our belly, as much of us as is here, to whatever extent we're here. Where does it leave you to contemplate right now, sitting in the uncertainty? Or put it another way, because it's not necessarily uncertainty, it's just this immediate, as my teacher calls it, raw, unvarnished, living presence this raw, unvarnished, living present. (coughs) And right from there we can see where we want to move away, where we want to grasp towards, and where we want to fade out. Why? And I, I'll share with you a cartoon I share very regularly because so human. We're so human. <laughs> it's a lot to tolerate, this inconceivable mystery. How do you open your heart to that? How do you let your heart be open to that? Actually, before the cartoon, I remember hearing, you know, hearing this teaching and I was at the old guy house, which is a little village over there. It was smaller in those days. Hearing the teaching, something similar to this, but that kind of, okay, what's it like if I'm, if I'm sitting at the threshold? It was expressed differently, but the gist of that, right? Where I'm not, where I'm just seeing what's here, I'm not locating. And I went out to a tree and um, sat, stood with the tree for about a second and a half. And in that second and a half, something opened up. A kind of mystery came in a little bit. Something new and fresh got seen. There was a little bit of awe in the heart. It took about a second and a half. And it was like, right, what's next? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not that easy to just hang out. Right? There's lots of forces that have said, actually, that's not a good idea. To be that undefended. To be that open. To be... Right? The cartoon goes like this. It's Calvin and Hobbes. Forgive me for those who have heard me say this so many times. And Calvin's the little guy. I think he's about six and he has his pet. It's not a pet. It's a teddy bear, tiger. But it sometimes looks real to him because his imagination is still very malleable. And he's sitting watching telly indoors and his mum says, Oi, go outside and play. And he kind of buck, you know, hunkers down a bit more, right? Glued to the telly. Next thing, go outside and play. And she goes, and he says, no. And the next one, she's got him by the scruff of the neck and she's pulling him out. And they're at the threshold, actually, at the back door. And she's kind of plonking him down the steps and he's kind of wriggling, no. And she plonks him out the steps and, and she said, why not? As she puts him out there. And he looks up at the sky and he goes, it's too big. <laughs> it's too big. 
So it's not that we should be somehow now undefended at the threshold, right? That that's a new spiritual aim or a new thing for our inner critic to hit ourselves about. Oops, I'm not at the threshold. Right? We get interested that our pulling away from totality. The threshold of past and future, because that's very often where our mind is, even if it's one moment in the future, right? Past and future seem like real realms, don't they? But they're not here. And the Buddha, someone once asked the Buddha, why are your monks and nuns so radiant? And he said, my monks and nuns are radiant because they do not um, dwell in the past and do not hanker for the future. Those who dwell in the past and hanker for the future dry up and wither like green reeds cut down in the sun. And really keep your spiritual critic out of that. It's, yes, the, it's not about not healing the past. The past can be healed in the present. We can do that work. It's not about that that won't arise. But it's about the present, living present where the green reed actually lives. That's where the life is. That's where the juice is. That's where the devotion is. That's where the radiance is. That's where all the beautiful qualities are that arise in this living present. Another, another potential duality is open and closed. Because sometimes we can get the idea that I'm supposed to be open and then feel a bit flooded by everything that comes into us. And with all of those things at this threshold, here is our refuge. Here we need our refuge in Dharma, the protection of the Dharma. What is a real protection here when things do come in and they can be too much sometimes or it's scary or overwhelming? What is the protection? What is the real protection? Because what we often do as protection is shield the heart, right? With um, someone was exploring today some kind of like energetically, like we either shut it down or there's, she was experiencing some kind of metal quality around the heart. Someone else was experiencing like a lot of cotton wool around them on the energetic plane. Um, And we know that, don't we, when the heart's closed, or it can feel like wood or numb or just, you know, some way protected. But what's real protection? And one one way we can look at real protection is um, the protection of wise view, the protection of wisdom. That isn't that we have to let everything in that wants to come in, or we can be discerning about where we attend. It doesn't mean we have to go to Piccadilly Circus and put our arms out like that and reveal our sacred heart. That might be a little violent. That might not be our path. It might be your path. It might be true for you. But it's not making that another ideal or idea. So the protection of right view, of wisdom... Let's see.
wise view as we've been exploring is seeing clearly into the nature of things as they are, seeing the characteristic of change, of impermanence, that if I take hold of something, I suffer. If I take hold of it as me and mine. The wise view has to do with the way we're looking at things, the way we're looking at the world and ourself. When you hear the world, I think I always used to hear the world and my eyes would go out there, right? It's the world. It co-arises. It's, it's all arising. And this morning we did the exercise with the gazing with the eyes. Right. How are we viewing both with the eyes and the inner eyes? How are we viewing? How are we gazing upon things? There's a teaching which I'm remembering rather than I didn't bring my little paper with me. But it's... Um, here it goes like this. It says, when you gaze... This isn't from the Buddha Dharma, so it has different language around it. It says, when you gaze upon an object, you bring blessing to it because you know it is absolutely nothing without the divinity that penetrates it. On the other hand, when you look upon something as if it were separate from you, you cut it off from its divine root. So how we gaze upon ourself, all of it, and know its divine root, do we know that? Even those things we would rather were not there, do we know that that too has a divine root? The sadness, the anger, that if we know how to gaze upon it wisely, we know that it is nothing without the divinity that permeates it. And something about the silence and the solitude can start to let us get a taste of that, that whatever arises actually is not an error. There may have been some really difficult conditions of our life that are tragic and awful, but as we work with them to heal them in the present, there is something divine and sacred about that action. Sacred, I I looked it up and it comes from... um, Sacrare from Old English and then prior to that Latin, but it has to do with devotion, right? And to consecrate also is to bring devotion to what we're doing. It's through our gaze, it's through our, and not just the eyes, but through the way of attending that we restore something to the sacred through the way we look at it. It's not the object itself. That already belongs to the totality. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with us. But how we gaze upon it is whether we know it's connected inextricably to the totality of things. So here's a story. Here's how we look. This is, this is from uh, the Zen tradition again. So the story of King Teijo, this great king who was, uh, I guess, in Japan. Would that be right? I don't know. Um, who, who grew weary of formality. <laughs> Any of you grown weary of that yet? Yeah. King Teijo grew weary of formality, and he longed for the joy of simple human contact, openness, and rude humor. <laughs> That's what he longed for. He was a little bit in the, too much in the formality, and he was... Anyway, you'll see what happened. He called his close companions to him, and um, 
including Mu Hak. And he announced, the king announced, that for this weekend they would abandon all formalities and careful language and relate as old friends. This is his idea of old friends, right? He's got a bit to learn. So the group loosened up and started to enjoy themselves. And the king announced he wanted everyone to play a game. And they, I didn't write it all down because they had a few drinks and they did a whole bunch of stuff anyway. And the king announced he wanted everyone to play a game. In this game, they would go around and launch insults on each other. Um, insults flying and not getting... Oh, so the insults started flying. Everyone was insulting each other. He's got a bit to learn about the middle way here. The insults were flying because being free doesn't mean we say everything that comes into our head, right? The insults were flying, but they were not getting too personal with the king. (laughs) Finally, the king turned to Mu Hak, the old Zen master and national teacher. The king turned to him, really wanting wanting this, this kind of... He said, old Zen monk... With your smooth head and pink flesh and bulging eyes, you look like a pig. And everyone laughed loudly. Then Muhak stood up and performed one of the most devoted formal prostrations in front of the king. The king. Can't read them. Oh, the king erupted in anger. Muhak, why did you disobey me? I ordered everyone to offer insults. Instead, when I called you a pig, you only bowed down before me as if I were a Buddha. Are you crazy? Zen Master Muhak then addressed the king. A pig's eyes see a pig. Buddha's eyes see a Buddha. Pig's eyes see a pig. The Buddha's eyes see a Buddha. So let's work to restore our view to its sacred root. And allow us to rest at the threshold a little more, get more and more of a sense of that. At the threshold where the heart is not defended because it's protected by right view and seeing clearly. Unshrouded undefended, the sacredness, the restored to devotion, that the passion and the longing of the heart are restored in devotion to something that leads onward towards well-being and freedom for beings. So just finally this, uh, how does this heart want because we've been looking really haven't we at that problematic aspect of craving where the wanting just takes us out it just follows the passions and out it goes or the or the pushing away and i want to just introduce you to this beautiful uh, concept from the teachings dharma chanda which has to do with the passion for being awake the passion for being awake So we don't have to shut down around what we are as loving beings, as beings who do want freedom. It's when we have an idea of what that freedom ought to look like, that's when the craving takes us out. But can we let the heart wish 
and talk to itself. Let that devotion enfold itself back again and again to know what it is we're truly devoted to so that the head, the heart and the belly can be in the service of waking up. I want to finish with a song. Please join in. I know lots of you will know it. At least you can hum to the bits. Because I was going to photocopy it, but I only scrawled it about half an hour ago. So it's called I Wish, and uh, you might have heard Nina Simone sing it. Um, Let's sing it together. Or you can click, or you can listen, or you can (laughs) tap, or you can hum. But she's expressing, in terms of the worldly sense, like right, her people in the very real bondage in the world, in the outer world, of those people kidnapped from Africa and enforced into slavery. And she's speaking about freedom, but that, and that's a very real level of freedom, right? And it goes right through. It's the same human longing for that complete freedom. So, as you sing it, it's not for in the future, right? Because when we have the idea of, oh, I wish for something that will arise later, when I'm more enlightened, when I'm more free, when I'm better, when my personality is a bit better, that's already, we've already stretched too far. We've already gone into the world of time. This belongs to the timeless realm, and it's available here and now. Let that heart's wish enfold back on itself so that we're not having an idea of where that's going to be in the future. Let it fall back into the timeless, immediate living present. So you can click and give me a beat. You ready? (laughs) Thank you. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. We can go a bit faster, I think. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say, or oh, I'll do the actual, I'm longing to say, say it loud, say it clear. For the whole round world to hear on two actions for you. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means to be me. Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free. I wish I could give. I wish I could give all I'm longing, all I'm longing to give. I wish I could live. I wish I could live like I'm longing to live. I wish I could do all the things that I can do and though I'm way overdue 
I'd be starting anew. I wish I could. I wish I could be like a bird in the sky. How sweet it would be if I knew that I could fly. Oh, I'd talk to the sun and I'd look at the sea. And then I'd sing because I know. Yes, I'd sing because I know. Yes, I'd sing because I know what it means to be free. So let your heart have its Dhamma Chanda. <laughs> and we see the difference from that and the craving. That's for you too. So we've kind of, for some, stirred a little passion. <laughs> right? How do we marry that with the calm in the ground? Right? So please take some time for walking. Feel your feet on this earth. Let her hold you. Grounding step by step. And let your heart have its Dharma Chandra. And we'll meet back at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.